Welcome to Legville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Legville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Legville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. This episode is also brought to you by Brave, the new web browser by the inventor of JavaScript. When was the last time you seriously thought about your browser? Many of us downloaded Chrome without even thinking about it, but it's time to upgrade to something way faster, totally private, that actually pays you for browsing. That's why Brave is the new browser that everyone is switching to. Brave is three times faster than Chrome because it takes Chrome's engine and rips out all of Google's spyware while blocking ads and trackers right out of the box. YouTube ads too. So it works just like Chrome, except it's lighter and faster. Here's the cool part. If you choose to enable ads that you control, Brave actually pays you for any ad that you happen to see. You can then take your earnings and cash them out, tip them to your favorite websites and creators, or redeem rewards. It's like air miles, but just for browsing the web as you usually do. No other browser does this, and no other browser pays you. And no, Brave doesn't collect your data and sell it. It keeps everything local to your device. Brave is still a bit of an industry secret among lead tech users and privacy advocates, despite growing to over 22 million users in a very short period of time. You can be ahead of the curve, too. It's still early. Switching to Brave is super easy and quick. It lets you import your bookmarks, history, and replicate your entire workspace in less than 60 seconds. It's free, and all your Chrome extensions work in Brave, too. So listeners of the podcast, switch to Brave today. You can go to brave.com slash likeville and switch now. By downloading and using Brave, you're also helping support the Likeville podcast. Brave is available for your laptop, iOS, and Android. It's time to upgrade to the next generation of browsers with Brave. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we're going to be talking again with philosopher Eric Winsberg uh, from the University of South Florida about the lockdowns and the pandemic and responses and all this stuff. We spoke uh, to Eric and a couple of other uh, friends of ours and colleagues um, a couple of months ago about this and we wanted to check in and see um, if there's been any changes. So welcome, Eric. Thanks. It wasn't a couple of months ago. It's almost a year ago now, wasn't it? Yeah, you know, that is such a testament to how um, confusing time has become Absolutely. during the pandemic. It's, it, it's so messed up. Like something that was uh, that was a year ago or six months ago can seem years ago or it can seem like it happened. It's Everything is kind of flowing together. I, the amount of times that I have uh, taken out the garbage on the wrong day or the recycling on the wrong day because I forget if it's Thursday. We actually, I got um, two tickets in the mail from the city of Montreal. We have uh, for putting the garbage out on the wrong day. I think it's like each one of them is like 272 bucks. So we have, yeah. And it's, and it's, you know, I've never gotten a ticket like that before in my life, but it's because our sense of time is so completely messed up by this you know but anyway so um i know it's such a massive question but what do you think is right and wrong with how we're 
dealing with this pandemic? Uh, let me think if I can think of anything that I think is right. Um, uh, I guess, um, I guess compared to most places, the U.S. is doing reasonably well with uh, getting the vaccine rolled out. Oh, you're doing uh, way better than Canada. You're doing better than Canada, certainly way better than um, than uh, Europe. Uh, especially if you don't count the UK as being in Europe, which I guess it isn't anymore. Uh, so yeah, so I guess we're doing okay with that. Um, we're finally starting to get schools opened in a lot of places, which is good. We, I don't think ever should have had schools closed for more than a few weeks. Uh, that's been a disaster. Um, I don't know. I mean, Florida's Brian, Florida, we're, we're pretty much, uh, we're pretty much reopened here. And, um, I don't know if it's just not season for us now again anymore, or if we're, you know, run through this or whatever, but we, we do seem to be, um, having a decline in cases, even though like in Tampa, things are mostly looking pretty normal here. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, how are things in uh, How are things in Montreal? Oh, things are uh, things are just a mess. I mean, we've we've had a lot of, as with everywhere, we've had a lot of small and medium sized businesses that have just gone under. Sure. Um, but actually, that is not the full picture because I I was having um, a conversation yesterday with this guy who owns. He owns a bunch of properties and he owns two bars and some restaurants and guy in my neighborhood. And he also sits on uh, the board, a couple of different boards of businesses. So he really kind of knows what's going on with small, uh, small and medium sized businesses in Canada. And he said that you just look at the amount of businesses that have gone under um, that doesn't tell the whole story because actually a lot of businesses that are still um, that are still sort of surviving, keeping their head above water, they have had to eat into all of their savings. Right. You know, so they've had to like, so they don't have very much of a cushion at all. So he said, you're going to see a, another wave of businesses closing, you know, maybe a year, two years from now, because they don't have any cushions of the, normally if you, you know, the, the, the old like rule of thumb is that uh, starting off a business is difficult because you're trying to build up enough of a cushion so that you can weather um, bad times and things like that, like a slow month or a slow quarter or maybe a slow year even. Um, they don't have businesses that have been established for 20 years um, who are very well established. They've got money in the bank and savings and things like that. They've sold off assets. Um, they've eaten through uh, their savings. And so the picture is worse than we think. Yeah. Uh, so that's the business part of it. Um, in terms of, you know, I look at my, my sons are 17, 18, and as a, as a prof, and I look at young people, um, the rates of, depression and anxiety are, I'm sorry, I'm a little bit emotional because I actually just had a very difficult um, conversation with a student uh, half an hour before this interview, yeah. but um, she's being committed. Okay. Uh, so yeah. Uh, anyway, it, it, rates of depression, anxiety are very high 
in a typical yeah. semester, in a, in a typical semester, I I have about somewhere between a hundred and sixty and hundred and eighty students per semester, and of that, in a typical semester, I'd say approximately one or two students end up having to um, leave because of severe mental health problems. Um, so maybe about one or two. So that means sometimes it's zero, sometimes it's three, maybe even four, but I feel on average about one or two out of that number. Last semester, um, it was uh, in the high 20s. Like that's just, I've never seen anything like that. Yeah. I mean, um, look, so, people, people are age, I'm, I'm a little older than you, I think, but, but people are age are having a rough time. But like, I can't even imagine coping with this being... Sort of, you, I, I suppose, the, you know, being 18 or probably the worst would be being like 21, 22, you know, and like finishing up college. And, you know, I remember that being a super stressful time in life because I didn't, you know, I didn't know I was going to go to graduate school first, kind of wondering what you're going to do with your life. And it's, it's hard and to, to face that now, like when, I don't know, every, everything is, you know, on hold. It's just got to be crazy. It is, it is very, it's very difficult. And, you know, I see, you know, like I'm, you know, I've, I've been married for you know, 20 years. And so I have like, you know, built into my home. I have like, you know, a, like a super amazing friend. I have somebody like companionship. I have all that stuff right here in my house. And my wife is also, she's a sociologist and prof. So we, we were working from home. You know, obviously, I miss seeing my friends. I miss social life. I miss all that stuff. But I still have, you know, access to a lot of those basic things that humans need, right? right. right. It's like right. these young people, they often, uh, many of them, they're at, they're at precisely the point in life when most people least, you know, like their parents least and are most kind of not getting along with the right. parents and not right. getting and on. also our particular I, I remember that age you know you know it's very sort of relationship stuff is very angsty at that age too you know you you, you start to feel like you should be with somebody and if you're not like am I ever going to meet anybody and yeah it's like well it's, it's the romantic stuff but it's also just um you know friendships like I have sure. differences sure. one I have like I have one student who I'm thinking of right now and he comes from a very very a traditional uh, conservative uh, Middle Eastern background family story. And he, he's, you know, he just recently um, about a couple of months before the pandemic hit, he have came to terms with his sexuality and came out and stuff like that. And like, so for, for him, his friends, his life outside of his home is like his only real life. That's, that's his real sort of family. And now, He's stuck 24-7 with people that uh, don't know him and, you know, would not like him if they knew, you know, what he is and what he, it's just, it's just really kind of a bad, bad, bad situation. And what, what gets me is that, you know, even though I, even though I maybe agree much more with the policies than you do. I think on in general, I think I probably am more sympathetic to the policies than, than you are. Um, but it still bugs me. I can't help but notice that 
the people making these decisions are almost completely people like you and me. They're sort of professionals who can work for home very easily, collect a the salary is deposited into our bank account every two weeks, regardless of, you know, nothing changes. And so it's pretty easy for us, you know, I'm 46, you're about the same age, maybe a little, it's fairly easy for us to make these tough calls because it's sort of like deciding to uh, get into a war when you don't think that any of your kids are going to have to go fight it or you you don't have very much. And look, it's not, it's not just people. It's not people like us making decisions. It's people like, you know, Gavin Newsom who gets to go to French laundry and, you know, uh, have a fancy meal with his, with his friends whenever he wants to, and everybody else's, you know, restaurants are closed. It's like, it's governor Whitmer who gets to get, have her boat put in early before everybody else, because her husband asks for a favor you know, it's that these people are completely just there's the, the line, you know, the list of people like that that have just behaved completely shamelessly. Uh, it's just depressing. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you that that there's there's some pretty appalling hypocrisy. That's uh, that's totally true. But but I think that that is a little bit of a distraction because yeah, the, no, the, pol- the, the policy is, the policies yeah, could be good regardless of whether or not um you know like if i if i say that it's a bad it's it's a bad idea to let's say i don't know uh cheat on cheat on your spouse or something like that if you're in a monogamous relationship and and i actually do it i mean that makes me a hypocrite but it doesn't make that a bad idea right, so no no i take your main point to be that um i, I you know i don't exactly know why but it does seem like people between 40 and 60 uh, were the most um, were the most eager to, to do all this. You know, people under 40 uh, wanted no part of it. And surprisingly, I think, I, the more I've looked into this, I think older people really wanted no part of this, uh, particularly really old people who, um, you know, a lot of them have been just deprived of all the contacts that they normally would have with their family, which usually, I, I imagine, you know, limited enough. Um, and I think a lot of them feel like, well, you know, look, I, I mean, I'm not, I don't have that much longer to live anyway. And like, why are you locking me in my room now for this? I'd rather take the risk. It's really, yeah. it's really, yeah, it's, it's really, it's people, you know, it's people between, between 40 and 60, um, who've, uh, who've leveraged down on this the hardest. And yeah, I think it's just because, uh, they're at the stage of life where it's least inconvenient. You know, we're all, especially if they're knowledge workers, as you say, you know, and are sitting in front of the screen most of the day anyway. Uh, it's like, wow, what the hell? This is no different. Yeah. It's, I don't know. Um, but, but you've, you've made a number of sort of strong claims about this, which I, I cannot, I don't know. I can't, I can't get to the bottom of this. I was actually talking recently with, um, uh, friend of mine, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, and he, he's, he said, you know, yes, there've been all sorts of problems and stuff, but he, he said, you know, if, if we had done nothing, um, there would have been like way, way more. Yes. There would have been like, what's the, evidence, probably... of that? What's the evidence of that exactly? I mean, I don't, uh, I don't see it. So, I mean, here's a, here's a, I think pretty striking comparison. Like, I, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the, the world on here. Cause I, I don't know. Um, and if you look at uh, if you look at the deaths per million in Florida and California, 
So California has one uh, has 1,332 deaths per million. Florida has 1,450 deaths per million. Florida's median age is seven years older than California's. I did the math on this at some point, just looking at, you know, looking at the actual number of people on each age decade for the two states and looking at the death risks of COVID by decade. Um, Florida ought to have 70% more deaths than California just by doing the age adjustment. Uh, you know, California has been the state in the U.S. that's been the most aggressively locking down. And Florida is the state that's been run by DeSantis, right? The guy that um, everybody's been vilifying since, since last March. Uh, why, why, are, why are outcomes not more different? I don't know. I mean, that's sort of why I brought it up to you because yeah. I've, I've yet to, this seems like everyone when we were kids, they had that, that crazy comic series where it was the what if. It would be like, what if Spider-Man? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, Super yeah. What if a shark fought a sumo <laughs> yeah. wrestler or whatever? Yeah, yeah, exactly. right. Yeah, yeah no, like, I mean, so sure. It's a what if, right? It's a what if. And I don't, yeah. I don't know, but he was, he was saying that, uh, Taleb was saying that if, if they had done nothing, um, it is very likely that the United States would be at a million deaths right now, not 500,000. I, find that, I be. find that pretty hard to believe. I'll tell you why. Because, um, because I think more than half of Americans have been affected with this already. You think it's that high? Yeah, I do. I mean, the CDC does, right? The CDC said, um, the CDC said at the end of November that we were uh, at about 100 million infections. Right. Um, so uh, it's hard for me to believe we're not at 150 now. Yeah. And Nicholas, Nicholas Christakis, who, of course, wrote uh, that book, Apollo's Arrow, on the, uh, on the coronavirus and the pandemic and stuff like that. We had him on the podcast a little while ago. He was also saying that um, there, would, uh, there would have been like way, way more deaths if they had not done things that it would he also like Taleb says that you easily this could have been um, over a million deaths right so I, I mean well, this, I wanna, it is I mean, a what if scenario, I want to know right? what their evidence is I think the evidence is like pretty strongly against that uh, if you you know if you, if you there, there, are, there are lots of places I mean so you know Florida has had Florida's had no restrictions really at all since September uh, we had a pretty we had a pretty big wave of infections that went from, you know, December to February or something like that. Uh, I mean, we've been pretty hard hit. Um, and yet we're not really faring worse than, like I said, states like California that have been very aggressively locking down. Yeah. And you've seen, I mean, you've just, you've seen this pretty much everywhere, right? Um, places that were, you know, uh, tooting their horns about how well they were doing, just eventually all succumbed to it. Um, and it's, 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 it's not evening out entirely, right? But it's, uh, you know, I mean, if you look at, if you go to, if you look at, say, Europe, um, and you look at, uh, you know, what are the, what are the, what are the worst hit countries and what are the, what are the, the not worst hit. Um, you don't really see a lot of correlation between the ones that had aggressive measures uh, being less hit hard. So Sweden's kind of middle in the pack. 
you know, um, France, which has been, uh, and, and the UK have been very aggressive in their lockdowns or have, have um, you know, more deaths than Sweden. Uh, I just don't, I don't see a lot of evidence that this has done a lot of good. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't been convinced either. That's sort of, but I, I wonder if that's maybe because I just haven't, you know, been able to sort through the sort of the epidemiological data because maybe I just don't have the requisite yeah. training that maybe, you know, and I'm, I'm definitely willing to acknowledge that that's very much possible. But I've I've tried very, very hard to, you know, wrestle with all of those numbers and those, you know, and I, yeah, I, I I haven't seen anything that, that for me went beyond a what if comic. Like I haven't yeah, yeah. seen that. But, like, but I mean, so I mean, I, I guess you know, I, I let me try to be a little bit um, circumspect in how I say this. I'm probably not going to be very good at it. But there's just been a lot of there's been a lot of um, there's been a lot of scientific work over the last year establishing the effectiveness, you know, quote unquote, establishing the effectiveness of a lot of this and, and, and sort of piece by piece, a lot of it's been revealed to be pretty sloppy. Um, I mean, so like, you know, for example, just give you one example, right? So we all remember the Imperial college model from back in March of last year. This was the one that said that, you know, if we did nothing, we'd have 2.2 million deaths in the U.S. and 500,000 in the U.K. And then, um, you know, around December, they, 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 they used that, um, you know, not exactly the same model, but they used the same sort of modeling methods. And they tried to show, like, you know, how many lives had been saved by the lockdowns. And they published this in Nature. And then within a, within a month or so, um, there was a reply in Nature in which, in which the, the, which the respondents pointed out that, um, the, you know, the, the model was predicting a similar number of deaths for, uh, for Sweden as for, for the rest of the European countries. And it's sort of, well, how could that be? And it, it turned out that, you know, they, they, uh, in, in every country other than Sweden, they attributed something like, you know, 95% of the effectiveness of all the measures to, to lockdowns. And then in Sweden, they had a country specific effect for closing large events. Cause that's the main thing that Sweden did. Sweden closed large events. And, and in the models, the, the effectiveness of closing large events in Sweden was 35 times larger than it was in the rest of Europe. And that's what they had to do, right? They had to do that to make, to make it look like um, the model was both, getting its predictions right country by country um, and establishing the effectiveness of the lockdowns. So, and then of that's course, there were really, all, that's really sloppy stats. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's very super sloppy. And then, you know, there were all, there were, we were all subjected to all these, um, we were all subjected to all these, you know, causal inference studies uh, over the sort of middle of the year that were showing, you know, how effective the lockdowns were in California by comparing California to, other places, but you know that was all. That was all, of course, premature, right? I mean, it's, it's we don't we don't um, you know we don't have a good grip on we don't have a good grip on what what makes uh, waves happen where they do and when they do. Uh, but it was pretty clear, like by you know by the end of December, that the idea that you know California had found a, a you know a magic bullet against this was 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 it was 
was wiped out. I mean, they're, 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 they're doing, you know, pretty much the same as everybody else. Yeah. So. <clears throat> well, there's, there's, a, we got a whole bunch of questions from listeners that they wanted to ask you specifically. Well, and okay. I, I mean, yeah, I just, I want to make sure I, I touch on two of them uh, before I forget. <laughs> the first one is that, you know, a lot of people said, okay, you know, when they listened to uh, the episode where it was, you know, you and me and um, Chris and Jason, and we were talking about the quarantine. And one of the things that we agreed on, I think you actually proposed this and we all sort of wholeheartedly agreed was that, you know, if you have to do a cost benefit analysis and say, well, okay, well, how many people are going to um, maybe die? You know, how many people are going to be saved by having a, lockdown quarantine and then how many people are going to die uh, excess deaths because of suicides because of you know various right. problems that are a function of uh, the the misery and depression and anxiety that's brought on by this and people losing their jobs and losing going bankrupt and all that stuff and that if you add in uh, all of those deaths you will get you'll get a picture that maybe says that even if you are saving you know, a certain amount of people, you're losing people for these other things. And so that yeah. um, on balance, even if the logic of the lockdown turns out to be, you know, sort of true, uh, maybe not as true as they say, but sort of true that even then it would be a good idea to, <clears throat> to end it because of these other problems. Now, to the best of my knowledge, and correct me if I'm wrong here, because this is the, the question everybody's asking is so far it looks like if you look at the CDC numbers and Health Canada numbers and um, I've seen the numbers from France and from the UK uh, and from Finland and it, it looks like um, we haven't seen this huge wave of suicides that was supposed to happen that was supposed to that would tip the scales and say well maybe this is on balance like a bad idea it, what do you think about that so wait a minute. Let's back up a couple. We need to back up a little bit on this. So first of all, we we don't we don't want to compare um, we don't want to compare what we think uh, the effect of the lockdown is against the number of COVID deaths. If the COVID deaths happened, we we want to compare that against what we take to be the number of lives saved from COVID by the lockdowns. Yes, we have to agree on what that is. In my view. <laughs> My view is it's that's a small number. I mean, okay. given that you know, given that, um, like I said, I think that I think that um, I think the U.S. has probably crossed the fifty percent mark of infections. It's hard to believe for me that we that we actually saved that many lives. That's the first point. We'd have to agree on what that number is, and I, you know, my my view is that number is probably pretty small. Um, the second point is, uh, I wouldn't be comfortable just saying, oh yeah, we need to compare it to suicides. I mean, I think we need to compare it to, you know, suicides, homicides, uh, death from poverty around the world. Um, you know, death from, uh, uh, so, I mean, I, I think you need to look at this, you know, pretty holistically, right? So I, I you know, I doubt there've been, I doubt there've been, um, I doubt there've been like, you know, that many suicides just because of lockdown that that would really push the needle one way or the other. But, um, 
but they're, you know, they're, they're huge numbers of effects. I mean, we have to look at like, you have to look at not just who died this year, but you know, I mean, we've had a whole generation of kids um, who've lost a whole year of school. Uh, you know, how many of them in the U S are going to end up incarcerated uh, because, um, because, you know, I, I saw somewhere that just saw this was in, in St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, you know, 50% of kids uh, in their school system were basically failing out this year. Um, how many of them are going to end up incarcerated, you know, because of that? Um, and then, you know, I think even more dramatically, right, I think we tend to forget that um, in rich countries, you know, economic hardship sucks, but it doesn't usually kill that many people. But the, the economy is global. And I mean, this hit me, I remember in probably, I think this was probably before we did the last podcast or maybe slightly after, but I was in California when we did it. And uh, I sort of met up with this friend of mine. Um, it was like the first person I had seen, you know, outside of the house since the lockdown. And he was, he was, he was complaining that his shorts didn't fit really well. He was complaining that, um, you know, uh, he couldn't wait for all this to end so he could buy a new pair of damn shorts. And I, I suddenly thought, it suddenly occurred to me, like, well, wow, like, what's happening to all the people, you know, in places like Laos and Honduras and wherever else where they sew our clothes? Um, you know, they don't, have, uh, they don't have unemployment insurance in places like that. Those people all live, uh, you know, hand in mouth every day. So we tend to forget, I think, that um, when, when there's economic hardship in Canada or the U.S., it, it sucks for us, but, it, but it's, it's, it's devastating for our trading, some of our trading partners. Yeah, well, I mean, you see, I mean, there's so many examples to illustrate your, your point, but one that jumps out to me is there have been these massive protests happening in India right now, right up in the north of India, and those protests are, I would say, um, to a large extent, because the Indian government, like many governments, is is like really running out of money and is you know is in trouble, and so they they can't afford to subsidize their farmers in the, the north. Now, this was this was a, a really important decision. I mean, you can you can say you don't agree with it or you agree with it, but India decided uh, a number of decades ago that because of their position in the global economy, because of their, um, the sort of the value of their currency vis-a-vis other currencies, it, it, at this point in their development, it didn't make sense for them to rely too heavily on the, the global food market because if their currency sort of drops you know, in one month or one uh, year or one summer, um, and then they're importing too much of their food, suddenly their food costs can go up by 25%. And we saw this a number of times. We saw with the biofuels thing, where suddenly the price of rice and corn went way, way up because all these fields were um, growing stuff for ethanol and everything. So they, they decided that they needed to actually support their own agriculture and uh, even if that meant subsidizing farmers and things like that so that they would be able to feed their over a billion people uh, if need be, right? Well, now they're out of money. And so they've been, Modi's been trying to like cut corners and 
trim things. And one of the things, and they don't have the, the ability to borrow you know, massive amounts of money the way that Canada and the United States can, right? Um, so they've, one of the things they've cut is this, uh, these farm subsidies. And now there's what is it, hundreds of thousands of people protesting in India. Right. People are being, it's a really, really, and that's, you know, that has to be calculated on the COVID ledger. That needs Absolutely. to be. So, so a couple, actually, yeah, I want to make a couple of points about this, right? One is, I think we need, we need to not underestimate the extent to which, and this is more about the United States and Canada, but Canada participates in this a little bit, I think. When the United States adopts certain policies and says, moreover, that they're, that they're sort of the morally required policies, that has an effect on what other governments around the world do, right? You can't, mm-hmm. you can't, um, you can't have, you know, people in the United States all agreeing, all the, you know, that this is morally required, and then not expect that, say, governments like the Indian government are going to feel a certain amount of pressure to emulate it. So I think that needs to go on the ledger too. And, um, and in India, right? I mean, yeah, India is just a completely alarming, you know, uh, example of how this has gone horribly wrong. So, you know, first they started, they started their lockdowns in I think sort of mid to late March. This resulted in migrant workers in India being kicked out of their jobs, kicked out of their housing, being hundreds of miles from their, the villages that they came from, public transportation was all closed. They were all trying to walk home hundreds of miles. Lots of them died of starvation and thirst. Um, meanwhile, right, we know, we, so we, you know, we do know in India, they've done a lot of serological studying in India. So we, we have a pretty good idea how much of India has been infected by, by COVID. And it's about 60%. Oh, wow. They, oh, yeah. So India has been completely, completely swept up by COVID because of course they couldn't in the lot, they couldn't, they couldn't, you know, they're not like us. They couldn't, they couldn't hold the lockdowns lasted there three or four weeks. Um, you know, they were pretty devastating uh, just in the three or four weeks they were in place, but they couldn't, they couldn't sustain them. Um, and, you know, India has now, I'm just looking at worldometer. I don't know how accurate this is, but you know, it's claimed they have about 160,000 COVID deaths. That's, that's a third that's one third of the number of people who die of tuberculosis in India every year, every year. Right. So, so, so the, you know, the, the calculus on these things is it really kind of varies by place. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know how you, I don't know how you, um, I don't know how you measure that. Right. Like what, like how, how, how you measure our degree of responsibility in that. Uh, yeah. But I, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's zero. I mean, I think, I think, um, I think the kind of, you know, the, this kind of um, widespread agreement that we had in the Western world, uh, you know, and it was, it's not just the United States and Canada, it was the UK, it was France, it was Germany, uh, that this was, you know, this is what you had to do. This was morally required. Um, I think that, you know, I, I think that had effects in places like India and South Africa that felt that if they wanted to be, you know, taken seriously, they had to, they had to do similar things. And, and, and there wasn't just, there's, yeah, I mean, there's not just a few people getting depressed and committing suicide. It's, you know, these, these are, these are places where, um, 
economic hardship is uh, is a death sentence. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and, and so and then there's and, and there are two there are two causal pathways to that. One is, as I said, just um, this this you know kind of setting the you know being hegemonic powers and setting the agenda that this is the right way to respond. But then even after even after all these places, uh, of course, you know, gave up on this because they couldn't. There's no way they could sustain it in developing economies. Um, but our our reduced commerce, right? I mean, hits them pretty hard uh, because mm-hmm. they're our trading partners. Yeah, I, I and then you know, there's so many other like I, another factor. I think you know, I thought this is where you were going to go with the story about your friends with the your friend with the shorts, but yeah, all sorts of people have gained gained weight um, lost muscle mass they've been they've uh, been less active and so you know, because of gyms being closed because of parks being closed people and so that through the on our our proverbial ledger that's got to go on there somewhere like yeah, it's, it's going to take it yeah i think so i don't i don't think we can look at when when we look at the if, if you insist on if you insist on measuring what goes on the other side of the ledger of lockdowns and deaths. And I think that's probably, I'm not hundred percent comfortable with that, but let's, but, but even if you do, um, you're, you're going to have to look at, you're going to have to look at the effects to this over the next 20 years. You're going to have to look at the effects of this on people who missed their cancer screening on people who didn't go to the gym on kids that failed out, of, failed out of school um, on people that became addicted to drugs, but haven't yet overdosed on them. You know, uh, so the COVID is happening this year. The COVID deaths are all happening this year. Uh, the costs are going to be paid over the, the cost, even in lives, even just in lives, the costs are going to be paid over the next 20 years, I think. Yeah. Well, I know just, you know, in my own life, my, my, both of my sons are, are in college and my younger son dropped out. He decided to not to go back this semester because he said uh, he basically, he wasn't really learning anything by doing it online because, um, you know, at the college where I, where I teach, there's, there's a mixture of pre-university programs and, you know, as, as we've, as Jason and others have pointed out, a lot of those kind of humanities, social science, filler gen ed courses are, you know, they're kind of bullshit and there's not, there's not like that much content to a lot of them. So um, it's maybe easier to, just sort of uh, get through the pandemic. But we also have a lot of very technical programs where you actually have to master some real skills in the world. Right. You're going to have to, you have to know how to do things. Right. right. And, um, and what I've heard across the board is that in, in programs where you have to actually learn something, there's like real content to the classes, the, the amount that, that people are actually learning is is much much less, and so my. Oh yeah, there's no this. question about that. I mean, I don't teach I don't teach anything that's of practical importance, but I teach a lot of logic, which is you know there, there are skills to be learned, and I can tell whether people are learning them or not. Mm-hmm. I taught it online last semester, and I'm teaching it in person this semester, and it's night and day. There's just no question. I mean, I just I lost so many students last semester. Um, I don't know. I, it's it's. I don't know exactly why. I mean, I'm doing, you know, it's, it's just, I mean, let's face it. The, the, the video medium is like, just not that great of a teaching medium. Uh, and it's, it doesn't, I don't know. It's, I think it's also just like 
when you're physically showing up in the classroom, uh, there's just there's, you just feel more accountable to getting your work done or something like that. that that's the best thing I'd come up with. Yeah. So, well, yeah. there's also just the, the I mean, in, if you've ever done any kind of live performance, whether it be music or theater or standard comedy, or you've been into any of those any of those scenes, there's always just this huge difference between being there live and sure. you can you just pick up much more on facial expressions, body language, tone of voice. There's all these things like you are communicating in so many ways that you're not even conscious of. Yeah, yeah, people. Friend, and that's just, just lost. A friend of mine just posted on Facebook that teaching on Zoom is like being a stand-up comic who gets on stage and realizes his material is just completely bombing, but still has to go for two hours. <laughs> that's a good... That's a good. Term. That's what it's like. You know, you just you're like looking at your webcam and just yap yap yap, and you just have no idea if anyone's even like if they've all gone to the bathroom or you know. I my partner and I call it doing a Cartman because there's I don't know if you saw the South Park pandemic special where Cartman just you know he's go, he's zooming to school and he just puts a picture of himself in front of the camera and leaves. <laughs> no, I did. Yeah, so we, call, we, we talk about our students like pulling a Cartman when they think that they just, yeah. you know, <laughs> they just log in and then leave. Um, yeah. No, it doesn't. It doesn't work nearly as well. And I, I know that I've done. I did a, a fair amount of theater back in the day, and I was really into that. And I, I remember there was this experience, and which I then later on had, you know, numerous times teaching, that if you go to a class and or you give a lecture or you give a you know, performance and you have like a very sort of a crowd that's like really kind of into it and they're laughing or there's cracking jokes and their comments. And there's, you feel like this, a lot of you getting a lot of energy bouncing back from the crowd. It just, it, it, it creates this amazing sort of buzz in the room and you feel at the end of a performance like that, totally energized. Definitely. But then there's that, the, the horrible experience of just sort of getting performing and it's just dead air, like just nothing. Like as if they're just like kind of, you know, looking at their phones or looking at like just n- not, uh, not feeling it at all. And by the end of a performance like that or a class like that, you just walk out and you feel completely emotionally drained, like yeah. exhausted, Yeah, yeah. you know, and it's, it's a very, um, that's what that's what teaching on Zoom is like. So yeah, let me, exactly. I mean, let me ask you this because I, I want to I want I do want to bring this back to this ledger that we've been talking about, right? Yeah, and I don't want to make this too personal, but yeah, I'll just I'll just I'll, I'll sort of hypotheticalize your son, right? I don't know I don't know what he's I don't know what his career goals are, but let's suppose he you know he 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 has dreams of being a doctor someday or something like that, right? And now because of the pandemic and because he's dropped out of college, um, he ends up being uh, you know he ends up working at McDonald's for the rest of his life. But let's assume that, you know, whatever, he still, you know, he still lives his whole natural life, you know, working at McDonald's. I mean, does that go on the ledger as a negative or is it just deaths against deaths? I think it definitely goes on the ledger. And it's, I, I think we're, we're very much on the same page here because that's exactly where I was going with the yeah. idea. Yeah. Is to say I mean, that I, hope, I, sort hope your, I hope your son is, you know, I hope, I, I hope and probably expect that, be fine and you know when, when things go back to normal he'll reevaluate his goals and decide that's a good idea to go back to college i hope so um but i mean but some of them won't and i don't you know i don't want to i don't want to 
I don't want to not put that on the ledger just because nobody died. Right. Yeah, no, I, mean, I that's definitely, not, you know, yeah. the goal of life is not just for all of us to like reach the, 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 the maximum possible age while being miserable the whole time. Yeah, no, I, I actually, I wanted to sort of draw a parallel, which you've, you've, you're, you're already, you're totally there. Um, yeah. You're just talking about how like economic hardship is one thing for a wealthy country like Canada, the United States, or the EU or the UK, but it's a completely different thing for a country where you have a good percentage of the population that is just barely making it, you know, and so they can fall below below water because of that, right? Well, it's similar to that. That was my sort of the point I was going to try and make is that you know my my seventeen year old son he he has like two professional parents. He's got a lot of like family support and good sort of networks and things like that. He'll probably be okay, you know, fine. Um, right. uh, but there's, there's students I have who they just barely made it into college. Right. And they've got a bunch of like things sort of pushing against that. Right. So they've Absolutely. got maybe, they maybe they've got, yeah. Or if, they're, or if they're younger and they, they you know, it's, it's unclear whether they're going to go to college and now, yeah. you know, now they've, they've lost the whole year because, their parents don't really know how to work a computer. You know, I, so I, I have a, my, well, really my partner's friend, but she's a, she's a social worker in St. Pete here across the Bay. And uh, she works, she, she basically is a social worker for parents. So she doesn't work with the kids, but she works with adults who have young children. And, uh, you know, and they're from usually, pretty obviously, usually from, from modest socioeconomic means. I mean, they're, they're just, they're struggling so badly with this, you know, they're off. Some of them, a lot of them are single parents. They have, you know, multiple kids at home. They have maybe one computer that works. Sometimes they have to go to work because they're always, those people are always essential workers. You know, they're not, they're not, they're not zooming in from home. Um, so their kids are home alone and, and, and they're supposed to somehow zoom into school. Uh, and their parents don't really know how to work computers well or whatever. And, and, and of course, right. It's not like you can expect this, you know, the, the Pinellas County School Board to make this all easy and workable. They don't. It's all, you know, it's all a big mess that even, you know, well-educated and, and computer savvy people have trouble navigating. Uh, so those kids are just, they're just screwed. I mean, they're just completely screwed. Yeah. Um, and never mind, and yeah. Or worse, or worse, right? Um, you know, what about kids that, that are living in homes where there's domestic abuse? You yeah, know, I've seen, now, I've seen that. Yeah. And, and maybe, and maybe these are even, you know, maybe these are even slightly wealthier families where the parents are able to work from home. Well, what kind of nightmare is that for the kids, you know, where we, we know, right. We know that normally um, those abuse situations get detected where, where, do you, where, 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 where's that uncovered usually at school, at right. School. Kid, yeah. kid shows up to school with a, you know, with a black eye or, you know, whatever, and maybe if, if things go well, the teacher gets to the bottom of that. And maybe, you know, in, in a, maybe in an overly idealistic world, uh, something, you know, something is done about it. But, um, but now it's hopeless, right? They're just, they're just, they're just locked at home with their, with their abusive parent now. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's depressing. Yeah, and the whole, the whole connectivity issue is, is a massive one. Like, I know when the pandemic first hit, we had... Our two sons were basically on Zoom all day long, and then my wife and I were 
doing the same thing. And so our, our connection, although we have a good, you know, internet connection, it was not nearly uh, strong enough and big enough. So yeah. we had to call up our company. We had to Yeah, and you produce get them. a podcast. You produce a podcast, right? I mean, you're, yeah. you're in the top 1% of technological savviness for this kind of stuff. Imagine being somebody, you know, imagine being in that situation, being a single parent and not really ever having used a computer much in your life. Well, there's, I mean, there's that, I mean, which is a whole other, I'm just talking just the actual, even if you are savvy, yeah. we had to spend a whole bunch of money to get a new plan that costs much more a month so that we would have, yeah. you know, more kind of bandwidth and we would have be able to, to be able to sustain that much activity uh, going through. It was a, a bunch of extra money, a bunch of equipment and time. And we thought at the time, we're like, you know, there's lots of people that, don't have I uh, don't have the money to to suddenly up their their bill by it was like seventy five bucks we had to like per month like up like that's a big spike for some people right if you're especially yeah. if you're like okay. a single mom or something like that and so what's happened is I have a you know plenty of students who they don't have they have an unreliable connection so they can't. Um, actually connect when we have classes or they it drops constantly or they're living in a house that there's a lot of people living in a small place you know you have like three generations living inside an apartment and so it's always very loud in the background like yeah I had one kid uh, I had one kid last semester I suddenly realized he was he was joining the class on his phone from his car because, because of issues like that. And I just thought like, wow, like, yeah, that's a great, that's a great learning environment, you know, being, you know, in a parking lot somewhere in your car, like watching your, watching your logic class on a phone. Like, this is, this is, this yeah. is, this is it definitely does. a formula for my, you know, for, for teaching success for Eric. Yeah. Uh, but you know, what, what are you going to do? I mean, that's. Well, it reminds me of uh, a parallel problem that they were trying to address a few years ago in in France, and they they wanted to eliminate all homework from schools. And their reasoning was this is you know this has happened in numerous countries, but I think they were the country that sort of addressed it most intensely. I think Finland has also done the same thing, and I think there were attempts in Singapore to do something similar, but yeah. And so they, they said that homework um, in essence is, is it's a way very often for teachers to offload the job of teaching to parents, right? Now, if you have, if you have like parents who are very well educated and have the time to, to sort of help their kids, then this is, you know, not a, not a big deal. I mean, maybe it's sort of, unethical for the teachers to be doing that, but we yeah. um, yeah. but they can do it. But if it's, if the, the parents are, let's say recent immigrants who, who don't um, speak the language or the languages of the country they're living in very well at a high proficiency um, or they, or they're just working, you know, 60, 70 hours a week. Yeah, so they just don't have the time. Homework is just a way for, you know, cultural capital to be passed on from generation to generation. Here's what drives me crazy, right? Here's what drives me crazy. Um, a year and a half ago, you could have, you could have assembled all my friends. All my friends are, you know, I mean, my friends are all super liberal. I, I, I've always, I've always thought of myself as, 
until this year, I guess, I, you know, people now think I'm some crazy, not liberal person, but I've always, I've always thought of myself as a, you know, having very liberal politics. And, and until a year and a half ago, if you'd have, if we'd had this conversation about the homework thing and in France and whatever, I can promise you 99% of my friends would have said like, yeah, that's a good idea. Like that's unfair. That's unfair to immigrant families. It's unfair to, you know, kids from single parent households. And this is a great idea. We should, you know, we should be making sure that everything needs to be learned in school can be learned in school and not be, you know, not be outsourcing it to, uh, to the family situation of these kids, which varies tremendously and creates huge inequalities. Everybody would have agreed with that. Every, you know, every left-leaning person would have agreed with that line of argument until a year and a half ago. And yeah. these same people, these same people now, right, um, want to post stories on Facebook about how great it is that poor black kids aren't going to school anymore because they don't face microaggressions anymore in school. <laughs> I swear to God, this was in the New York Times like a few months ago and everybody was sharing it. Um, I'm like, come on. I mean, look. If you think that if you think that if you think that um, if you think wrongly, by the way, which is because it's false, but if you think that schools are a major vector for this virus, um, and you think that it, and you think that closing schools is going to save lives, and you think that you know the balance of costs on that is favorable, then own it, right? But don't, but don't, but don't, you know. Uh, don't piss on my head and tell me it's raining and tell me that, uh, that this is beneficial to those kids because, mm-hmm. because that's just, that's just, that's just a heinous view that the idea that the idea that like underprivileged kids don't need to go to school, that that doesn't create unfairness. Like that's just a heinous view. Like don't, don't tell me that. Right. At yeah. least, at least, at least own that that's like a significant thing on the ledger. But I just so many people that I know want to somehow pretend that this is just an inconvenience or that this is like not that big a deal. Yeah, um, I, I, that, that's exactly my experience because I've tried to draw this parallel, and um, I, I I wrote this this blog post a number of years ago, which um, which you know went went sort of viral and it was like shared on all these other things. It was it was called homework is evil and it's it was a little hyperbolic but i was basically making i was making the case that that homework is a kind of regressive tax on the poor and it's it's, yeah but it's five percent of what we're doing now right exactly and so and so i said you know all you people who a couple years ago were sharing this piece of homework Uh, don't don't you realize that the logic is exactly the same it's just multiplied by 20 yeah, that it's yeah. that you are basically um, you're creating a situation that is going to disproportionately really hurt the people who um, who most who most benefit from the from the learning, from the mentorship, from the food, from the yeah, the food <laughs> and the lunches, even just the lunches, you know. Yeah, and once again, what you were saying before about how this varies very much from country to country. In India right now, uh, they've been in this big drive. I think Modi is the one who started it. Actually, it was one of his big campaign things to uh, the you know this massive, biggest democracy in the world. And they've they put in these really strict guidelines that they sent to parents, where they tell the parents how much you need to feed your kids per day, and they have like all these posters all over the country saying and actually showing you like. This is how much rice your kid needs to be given per day. 
uh, and they if if they come to school because so many kids were coming to school hungry and passing out from hunger and things like that right. and so all these kids in India and I'm sure this is the case in, in other countries who um, basically their parents don't skimp on food and things like that because they don't want to get in trouble with the authorities. Yeah. Well, now the kids are all home. And so uh, that, you know, there's probably going to be a lot of kids that are much hungrier. And of course yeah. that messes if your caloric intake goes below a certain amount, you, you can't learn as well. Your brain function isn't as well. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of very, it, it really, really worrisome, but Every time I brought this up, it's uh, met with a kind of like, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. Like, yeah. you know, it's, uh, I guess, I guess it's because um, maybe there's so much at stake that people, people need to be all in on whatever position they happen to have That's occupied. That's I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll plead guilty to that. I mean, I'll plead guilty to being all in on my view and, um, but it's, I, I think uh, you know I'll plead guilty, but I'll but I'll also um, I'll also uh, give myself a little bit of a pass because I feel like I'm you know I'm I'm a I'm a very vocal minority in my in my um, in my circle on this. So yeah, there's the, the, the philosopher Daniel Weinstock, um, who he's been on the podcast a number of times. He uh, last year. I think it was just after we recorded that episode with uh, with Christian Jason, or, or just before he 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 wrote this post, which um, I, I keep going back to, and I wanted to know what you what you think of this. It's sort of like his um, principle of pandemic charity, right? So he says that many people have pretty settled opinions about what we should be doing, whatever their opinion, unless it is completely bonkers they will be able to point to some segment of the very preliminary research that has been done so far to back it up. The science does not point to one clearly moral or scientifically correct path, just a number of paths, each one draped in uncertainty and risk of terrible harm. We should be empathetic with one another across our disagreements rather than ascribing dark motives to one another when we disagree. We are ultimately all inclined toward one or the other of the scary options on the basis, perhaps, of aspects of our personal circumstances, our own vulnerabilities and fears, and also perhaps our privileges. Everyone is doing their best, including the men and women who we elected to office and who now bear the awesome, terrifying responsibility of trying to get us out of this. We will collectively choose path. It will come with its awful costs, and then we will have to live with what we have said about one another thereafter. Um, what, do you, what do you think of that? I mean, it's hard not to agree with that, but um, it's also hard, you know, that's, um, I, I'm not, I mean, I, you know, I'm probably not lived up to that. Probably should have lived up to that better. I've been um, pretty vocal about my views on this and uh, I've been a bit of a, been an asshole about it. <laughs> I, don't know. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I mean, I'm a, I'm a professional philosopher. I, you know, I, I argue for a living and I, I'm to be, you know, probably more aggressive about that than I ought to be sometimes. But, um, but, but, but I also think like, you know, we're not, we don't have quite the degree of uncertainty now that we did um, back in April or May or whenever that was. Uh, I, you know, I think mostly like at this point, we've seen the pandemic in the U.S. anyway, 
mostly run its course. I mean, I'm not, that's, I'm not saying it's, I'm not saying like in the absence of a vaccine that it would be over, although I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that in the next couple of months we'll get enough vaccine rolled out that it'll be over. But, uh, but I do, but I do think like, you know, I do think, I, you know, I, I went back and listened, I, w- I went back and listened to our, to our podcast from last May, I guess it was, yeah. you know, and, 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 and one of the points I think I, I, I made a few times on there uh, was that, uh, you know, that, that lockdown is a kind of a scarce resource, right. That you have to, you can't, you can't expect to be able to keep it in place for a year. Um, and I, I, I mean, in some sense, I was wrong about that. I'm, I'm pretty shocked at how long we've kept this up. But, but in another important sense, I think I was right in the sense that, uh, the, you know, the degree of lockdown that we've endured for the last year just hasn't really stopped infections. Just hasn't done it. Uh, like I said, I think, I think the U.S. is past the halfway point of people who've been infected by this by now. So... And one of the things that one of the things that Nikos Christakis said was that um, he said that the numbers have changed now to get herd immunity because of these new strains. So oh, I, I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a big strain skeptic. I, I, there's, I'd like to see I'd like to see the, the, the clear evidence that any of these strains are phenomenal or uh, you know have have any genotypic um, difference from from the original. I mean, I don't know. There's just not, there's not, there's, there, there are not a lot of, there are very few confirmed cases of reinfection that are serious. Um, he's he's not talking, he's not talking about reinfection, although that is definitely something to, to keep an eye on. He's saying that um, because, because these new strains are much more uh, contagious than yeah, we're really, I just, I just don't, I guess I just don't believe that. I that seen, they, they I, change the magic number that you need to get to. So, for instance, he, yeah, he was I, saying, I get, I get the idea. Yeah, I don't, I, I yeah. don't, I don't think there's evidence for that. I don't think there's evidence for that. I think, in, in part, the, I think, you know, the strain. I think the strain talk has been in part uh, a way of explaining uh, why this stuff that we've been doing that was, you know, that was. So, for example, you strain talk was like huge in the UK. Why? Well, because you know they they, they went into this massive lockdown and then the virus was still spreading like crazy. And so they had to come up with an explanation and the explanation couldn't be lockdowns don't work. So it was, Oh, strains, new strains, but no, nah, it's, I don't, I, I'm not, I'm not a believer in this. In this well, the, stuff. I know to the extent to which they've, they've been looking at that here and I've seen, I've seen the numbers. I haven't seen from California, but I have seen the numbers from, um, from France and from New York. And mm. the, it looks like one of the most solid foundations for that is somebody is, let's say, exposed to somebody else who has tested positive. And so they go and they get, um, they, they get tested and they say, you know, I was exposed on this day, right? Now, normally, up until these new strains arrived, if people then later on tested positive and came down with symptoms, there would be a fairly predictable period between um, first exposure and the onset of symptoms, right? And so what is the, the most solid evidence of these strains being different that I've seen has shown that the onset of symptoms is much faster, not just by like a couple of days. It's like, you know, cut in, well, so in half. So for one thing, I'm confused about that because, because slow onset of symptoms usually increases spread. 
because it means that people are have a long the period of time between when you become infectious and when you become symptomatic that's when you're infecting other people once you become symptomatic you stay home typically well the, uh, yeah but, but, i don't i don't understand it exactly yeah but but it, but in general look i mean this is just you know we're you're just gonna i'm just gonna say this and then we're, we're not gonna probably agree about it uh and I don't, i'm not gonna be able to make the case for it here but um i just I've just become really uh, disenchanted with uh, the, the the sort of ease with which uh, difficult to establish scientific hypotheses about this um, just get adopted really fast without with, with to, what to my mind looks like weak evidence. Uh, I, 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 I tend to think that the 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 originally the original supposed evidence for the for the infectiousness of the new strains was that the rate at which they were um you know sort of overtaking the population but there's 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 simple explanations of that that have nothing to do with um that have nothing to do with uh, a phenotypic difference between the strains it's just that if you you know i mean right i mean um infectious disease populations are are a set of overlapping networks and um, you know they tend to they tend to fill networks because if you know if you get infected then you're eventually going to infect the people you know you, you're sort of Kevin Bacon you know family like your friends and their friends and their friends and their friends and you eventually fill up that network and then the virus has to get onto other networks to infect other people and so of course if it happens to be that a new strain gets on a otherwise untapped into network. It's gonna, it's gonna, you know. So there, I think they're pretty simple models that show why you would get new strains, you know, filling up the networks faster than old strains that have nothing to do with um, a greater degree of uh, infectiousness of them. I don't know. Look, it could, be, I, I, I mean, it could be, it could certainly be that some of these strains are more infectious than others. But um, the idea, the idea, the idea that it, um, that there's been a substantial change in. Uh, what the herd immunity threshold, if there even is such a thing as a herd immunity threshold, I don't know. I think that's that's that the burden of proof on that ought to be pretty high. I think, and I haven't seen it. Yeah. Well, I, I, to me, this this potentially changes everything because the argument, uh, the argument for you know why we we're supposed to do all this stuff in the vaccine is that well, we want to get to herd immunity, but if you factor in all of the uh, frontline. Um, health workers like nurses and yeah. orderlies and stuff like that. And right now in Canada and the United States, the percentage of those people who are vaccine hesitant is, is hovering at around a third. So if you, oh. if you take all those people together and plus other people who are vaccine hesitant, you have, um, you have a, it can be somewhere in the range of, you know, maybe 25%, maybe a third of the population. Well, with the with the threshold for third herd immunity that we thought we had with this, those people were not going to matter. We would be able to get to herd immunity without them. But if it's true that these new strains are um, significantly um, more contagious and more, then it it raises that number from that magic number from let's say sixty sixty five percent of the population to more like maybe in the seventies. At which point, yeah. um, what are you going to do? Are you going to like force those people to like hold them down and like 
vaccinate them. Uh, so look, well, that's, I mean, that's I mean, scary. For one, for right? one thing, for one thing, for one thing, um, I've said this, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, I think it's less draconian to um, hold people down and force them to be vaccinated than it is to do all the stuff that we've done for the last year. But, wow, that's a strong claim. No, really, really. <laughs> Your libertarian really? friends must love that. Uh, why? I mean, you think that making someone take a vaccination is 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 more draconian than making them lose their business or preventing their kids from being able to school? Or I don't know. I don't see that. It seems minor to me compared to what we've made people endure for the last year. Uh, yeah. But 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 then my, my, my the second point I just think is like, I think a lot of the you know I think a lot of people that the herd immunity threshold talk is it's just wildly over idealized. I mean we don't there's not there's not some there isn't some simple number which is the herd immunity threshold for a population. Uh, that that's that's a that's a number that you get out of extremely simple models of infectious disease that that don't really bear that much relationship to reality. There's there's obviously um, it it makes a big difference who you're vaccinating. It, it makes a big difference, um, you know, uh, what kinds of network structures there are in the society between people who. So I, I just don't know. I mean. I, um, I, I, I color me, color me skeptical that, um, that the uh, genetic differences in the virus between now and last year have a predictable, um, impact on the number of people who need to be vaccinated. I just, I, again, I think the burden of proof on that claim is pretty high and I haven't seen it in that. Yeah. Well, this, I just have two more questions for listeners. I wanted yeah. to throw it through any, cause this is a very convenient, it fits well with what you're saying. So the first one is, um, uh, from Jason, um, and he says, uh, Professor Winsberg, um, if you were king <laughs> yeah. and you had, uh, and you could sort of d- decide what was going to happen now, what would you do if you could be uh, king? Uh, I mean, I'd be, I'd be doing everything possible to roll out the vaccine as quickly as possible. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I know that the exact best way to do that. I think there are probably some suboptimal ways that we're doing it now. And I think I'd be, I think I'd be basically trying to get people to be going back to normal lives as much as possible. Um, I certainly would be, I certainly would be opening all the schools. Uh, I'd probably, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd probably keep mass events closed. I don't think there's a huge harm to that. Uh, but I would certainly, I would certainly be making the schools be open. I would, uh, I would make, I, I would, Kind of make it be the case that university students could be having normal classes. Um, what other parameters do you think he wants to know about? I think he just means like if you could sort of if if you could sort of somehow have the power to kind of force. What other policy questions does he want? Does he want my answer on? Like I would I would be definitely reopening a lot of things. Certainly schools, uh, in person teaching universities. Um, so, yeah. Okay. And the, the second the second question was, um, you have expressed a great deal of skepticism of experts, of Dr. Fauci, of uh, many of these, the CDC and the World Health Organization. Um, although this skepticism seems to me to be well-founded in many instances, if we cannot rely on those sources 
of authority and information, how are we supposed to figure out what's true? Yeah, so I don't think that's quite a fair characterization of me. Um, I'm not, uh, so this is actually something I've been thinking about a lot, right? Because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very pro-science person in general, right? I mean, I don't know if your, your listeners know, right? I, I, I work on philosophy of climate science. I've written a book on climate science. I think climate science needs to be taken seriously. Um, I think that there are lots of, um, there are lots of, you know, truths of epidemiology that need to be taken seriously. Um, I think that, um, you know, over the last year, what's happened has been not that, um, it's not been that, you know, experts have come out and told us, you know, this is what, this is what, this is what we know. This is what science has taught us. Let me, let me, you know, let me just be a conduit for, um, for conveying what are the, you know, pre-existing discovered truths about viruses and about epidemiology. That's, that's sort of not what's been happening. They're kind of the opposite, right? It's been that um, people have been updating their beliefs. These, you know, the, the, the most sort of, you know, prominently public-facing experts have been updating their beliefs at, at rates that I just don't think, um, don't think, you know, work. So, you know, we, 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 went from, we went from masks don't work to masks do work in a matter of weeks, even though sort of, you know, all the, all the pre-COVID literature was very skeptical of mask wearing for spreading epidemics. We, you can go, you can look at, you can look, go look at, you know, CDC guidelines about, about lockdowns, um, you know, about sort of so-called non-pharmaceutical interventions is the phrase that was always used. Sort of standard view was that you should never close schools for more than six weeks. Um, you know, uh, so there's just been a lot of, it's, it's, it's been, it's been a period in which, a, it's been a period over which, um, you know, this has all become so politicized and so vexed and so whatever that um, I just think that, uh, you know, to be, res- to be epistemically responsible, one, it's, and it's unfortunate, right, but it, 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 I'm sort of shocked to discover this over the course of the last year, but I think, you know, you need to, you kind of need to just go back and look at what, what, what were people, what was, what did all the public literature say about this, you know, back up until 2019, because the stuff people are coming out and saying over the course of the last year flies in the face of a lot of that. And uh, I just think, again, I think a lot of when you, you know, when you do that, when you say, oh, this is totally new with everything's different and this is all different there should be a pretty high burden on you to, 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 to convince me of that. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, you know, I, I just think that, I think that this has been a, a, an unusual period and it's been one in which um, it's been one in which, you know, experts have kind of not been on their best behavior, unfortunately. Yeah. Not the ones that, at least not the ones that, you know, uh, there, 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 and there, there are there are others. It's not as if it's, it's not as if, by the way, it's not as if, by the way, that I that I hold views about any of these things that are not also held by pretty expert people, right? So it's not it's not like there's some it's not like there's some um, you know uh, uni, universally held view about these things by the entire expert community. 
it's just that it's just that the the debate has gotten centered away in which certain particular experts have been, you know, leveraged in favor of certain views. Um, so uh, I don't know. I mean, it's it's hard. It's it's I, I don't have a good answer to this because obviously, right? Um, I mean, I I spent a lot of my time in the last year looking at science on this stuff. Um, and I might say, yeah, you know, I'm obviously not, I'm not, um, I'm not, I'm not a virologist and I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not any of those things, but I am a pretty good, you know, I, I do, I do for a living read science, you know, I mean, this is what I do. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I do know, I do know how to read science, you know, I mean, I, I have pretty good skills at that. Um, and I have a decent background in statistics and et cetera, et cetera. But most people don't, right? I mean, most people obviously, um, you know, if, if, if if they want to know, or this is a question we were talking about at the beginning of the of the podcast, like how many more people would have died had we done nothing? And if, you know, and if Anthony Fauci and, you know, a few other prominent experts are saying like millions would have died, like what 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 are they supposed to do? Right? What should they listen to them or me? Well, I guess it's rational for them to listen to them. But yeah. uh and, and normally that's like, that's normally that like, if you'd asked me about any of this, like until a year ago, I would have said, like, yeah, that's probably your best bet. Um, but this period has just been so weird. It's been so, it's been, it's been so politicized. It's so, so much of it had to do with Trump and, 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 and all kinds of weird stuff. And um, so many people just changed their minds on so many things on the basis of what to me looked like weak evidence. Yeah. Well, this is the, the ne- next question comes from a listener in Virginia, uh, Cheryl, and it says uh, Eric Weinstein um, on his podcast recently uh, said that public health is at bottom um, the art of telling noble lies for yeah. the common good. Um, yeah. Is this characterization? Does this seem fair to you, Professor Winsberg? I mean, it certainly seems like what they think their job is. Um, I'm not convinced that that ought to be their job. Uh, I do think I think that person has it. I think that person has it descriptively right. Um, yeah. But I don't think that's a good idea because at the end of the day, right? This gets back to the ledger, right? At the end of the day, we all want to be able to look at the ledger. Um, and if you're telling me noble lies, you've, you've, first of all, you've, you've decided for me, right? You've decided for me. Um, well, I mean, let's take our, you know, let's take our hypothetical son who drops out of college and instead of becoming a doctor becomes, you know, works at McDonald's for the rest of their life. Um, you've decided for me what the value of that is compared to, the number of lives saved. But moreover, right, you, no matter what your expertise is in, right, let's say your expertise is in, let's say you're the, you're the absolutely best person in the world for determining how many lives would be saved, how many COVID deaths would be prevented by doing such and such non-pharmaceutical interventions in the form of lockdowns, right? 
there's no way you're also the best expert on predicting how many suicides that's going to cause, on predicting how many kids that's going to cause to drop out of high school and end up incarcerated, predicting how much starvation that's going to cause in the third world, predicted. There's just no, there's no single person, right, who's, 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 who's expert on all those things. So if, 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 if you take it upon yourself to tell a noble lie, right, if you say to yourself, gee, you know, if I tell people this virus could kill 500,000 people, they may, they may not take it seriously. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell a noble lie and tell them it can, call, it can kill 3 million people. Well, now you've, you've, now you've taken it upon yourself to force them into, um, you know, not being able, not being in a position where they can make informed judgments about how they, how they balance their values against the, against the different sides of the ledger on these, on these lockdowns. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's okay. Yeah. Well, I don't think anybody should have that much power. What it, it reminds me of um, when I was reading this question, I was thinking of in Saul Alinsky's rules, rules for radicals. He has this whole thing where he's, he talks about like, if you're an organizer, an activist, and you're trying to change the world, um, if something is like 87% a good idea <laughs> or like yeah. is 73% like likely to succeed, you never say we should have a revolution because it, this situation is 73% bad for us. And you, know, you never say that. You say this is absolutely terrible. It's 100% terrible. You always like, exaggerate, right? And radical, right? I mean, that's just like you. I mean, I don't, I don't know where you could find the justification for that, right? Well, uh, I don't know. It seems to me like this is this is to some extent a difference in strategies from country to country. Because I know countries like Sweden, uh, to a large extent, it's been the case here in in Quebec and some other countries. Um, I'll take a parallel issue, which is like how much you can drink when you're pregnant, right? Which I, I brought right. up in the in the pre our previous discussion, and I think it's just really sort of gets to the heart of it. Where our sure. our older son was born in Baltimore when we were at Hopkins, and then um, our younger son was born here in Montreal, and so we we had the experience of like being in two different health systems, and in the one. And you got to remember, these experts who are telling us this, they're all reading exactly the same journals. They right. all have the same information. They, right. So, and yet the American OBGYNs, they tell you if you drink at all during pregnancy, you're going to be uh, at risk for fetal alcohol syndrome and things like that. And they know that that's not true. It, but they see it as a noble lie. Yeah, but, there, but it's women are idiots. Yes, but right? this is terrible. Then, this is, okay, but but look at look, look at that. That's a great example. And let me tell you the absolute. I can hit that one out of the park because um, my former colleague, uh, who's a bioethicist, uh, Quill Rebecca Kukla, um, wrote a whole book on pregnancy and risk. And it turns out, it turns out that. It's a. It's more. It's more risky to the health of a child if the father drinks than if the mother does. Wow! That's I mean, for the amazing. obvious reasons. For the obvious reasons, right? For the obvious reasons. Sure. Because more likely to hit the mom, hit the kids. Yeah. You know, not be making drive, money, to, to, to crash the car, whatever. Yep. So, so the risk that alcohol poses, the risk that alcohol poses to children. 
um, is pretty high. And the percentage of that risk that flows through fetal alcohol syndrome is tiny. Okay. So, so um, if you tell that noble lie, you are, I mean, for one thing, engaging in something that's incredibly sexist. Yes. Right. Because now you're telling women that they have this enormous responsibility to the safety of their child, uh, such that they're not allowed to drink, but you're not telling that to the men, even though the men are the ones that are more likely to kill the children by drinking. Mm-hmm. So well, when, we, when we moved up here, it was completely different. They said, uh, sure, you can have uh, one glass a day with a meal, and that's no problem whatsoever. Is, and that, is that a Quebec thing, or is that a whole Canada thing? I'm curious. That is, um, I'm pretty sure, no, that's a Canada-wide. That's like the, basically the, what the, the organization, that's the standard. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's not as if this is like, it's not as if. Maybe I, I was misleading there. It's not as if these are individual doctors who told us this. This was not only did the the yeah, yeah, yeah. Incident, in, the in the literature in the literature it's actually different, right? Yeah. And so and so the first question I thought when I saw this glaring difference was I like has has the science changed dramatically? Because our our sons were born thirteen months apart. Like, has the science changed dramatically look, in there's 13 very, months? And there's it a hadn't. very general and abstract way of making this point, which I think hits at home, right? And that's this. Everything we do in life poses risks. Yes. Right? Everything we do in right life poses risks. And we don't abstain from, from we typically don't abstain from all of them. We don't abstain from driving, even though it kills 40,000 people a year. We don't abstain from drinking, even though it kills far more people uh, every year than, could, than it could possibly cause fetal alcohol syndrome, right? Mm-hmm. We, don't, we, don't, we don't even abstain from climbing mountains and kite surfing and riding motorcycles and, you know, doing things that are incredibly risky, right? So, um, so, how do we, so, how do we, you know, so how do we do this? Like, how do we decide what risks that we want to take and which ones we don't? Ideally, we do it with just the best information that we can have about what those risks are. And then we weigh them against like what we think the benefits of engaging in these risky behaviors are. But if you insert yourself as someone whose job it is to tell noble lies, like what have you done here, right? You've, you've, you're, you're, imposing, you're imposing your values on other people in a way that I just don't see how you can justify. I had I had this question in my intro to uh, intro to, to to ethics class a number of years ago, where it was a, an essay question on an exam, and I it was uh, if you if you are you have to, it gave a couple of assumptions, but if you are a uh, a very sort of devout Christian and you are raising your kids according to Christian values, should you um, participate in the Christmas ritual of Santa Claus when your kids right. are little, right? And um, and so they had to, they had to write this whole, and it was very sort of very fun reading them. But most of the students, especially the, the really smart ones, that they said um, they sort of reasoned through 
like what are the long-term consequences? And they came, they came to the conclusion that no, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't celebrate Christmas the way we do in our society because that experience of kids realizing, you know, at some age, you know, six, seven, eight, whatever, when they figure out that Santa Claus is their parents, that experience of realizing that your parents and, and all the adult world are going through this whole charade to trick you about something, um, that this is actually trying to plant the seed to them thinking, well, they're probably lying to me about Jesus and about yeah. <laughs> a bunch yeah. of other yeah. shit, right? Like, like yeah. why? Because it's not a, it, it doesn't take a very brilliant kid to make that logical, you know, leap that, uh, well, if they're lying to me about this big guy who brings presents, maybe they're lying to me about the other big guy, right? So they're saying that if you actually want to raise your kid as a monotheist, or whatever, don't uh, don't pretend. Don't, 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 don't. And it's, there is a similar thing going on. If you if you change your tune on uh, how much pregnant women can drink, or whether masks are useful or not, or whether lockdowns are useful, if you make these calculations because you think it's you know, for the greater good, and then you get found out, oh, of course. Well, then course. you lose your credibility. Yeah, you've been crying wolf. Well, sure, yeah, sure. But, and I, but I, once, I think, but yeah. yeah. And look, you know, so part of part of part of part of my original um, part of my original uh, interest in this was, I think, when I first started like looking at you know some of these models and, and worrying about the credibility experts on this. I, it hadn't really occurred to me what the what the full harms of lockdown were going to be. It, it didn't. It, it didn't. It didn't even. It didn't even occur to me that this would go on for a year. Right. I just, I, if you had told me that, you know, I think. I think lockdowns in California started about a week from now, last year, something like that. If you had told me that it would still be going on in a year, I would have thought you were insane. So it wasn't, it wasn't entirely, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't yet that I foresaw the dramatic harms that these policies would cause. I was mostly worried about what you're talking about because I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a person that's pretty interested in uh, protecting the, 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 the planet from climate change. And I just had, I woke up one, I, I woke up in the middle of the night, I think one day in early March of last year. And I thought, you know, this is all going to, this is all eventually going to play out and people are going to, people are going to, you know, realize that um, they've been caught, they've been, you know, cried wolf on and it's going to have blowback to climate science. Uh, and I was worried about that. And that's part of the reason I, and then, yeah, it's, just, it's evolved since then. And in a way, it's, this is, you know, with that other quotation that you read about people being all in on this. I mean, I, feel, I do to some extent feel seen by that quotation. I have become sort of all in on this and, you know, probably been, been you know, subject to the kinds of confirmation bias or whatever people typically do when they go all in on something. I'm not going to deny that's possible. But, but my but my original my original biggest worry was just exactly that that this was gonna this was gonna be a big this was gonna blow up into uh, a big blemish on the credibility of science. Yeah, well, for me, the the worst case scenario of sort of telling all of these what you believe to be noble lies uh, in government, the worst you you may you probably remember this too, but one of my you, Kind of, you know, people talk about baby boomers talk about, oh, they, they remember when Kennedy was shot or the moon landing and various things like that. One of the things I remember from being a kid that, that made a very big impression on me 
it was front page news um, here here in Canada. It was when Gorbachev was trying to sort of reform the Soviet Union at the end. And it was this one amazing little moment, little detail that just blew my mind, which is where they, they actually had to cancel the high school history exams because not only, not only did they not know what the true answers to some of the questions, um, they were wrong. They actually didn't know what the truth was mm-hmm. because they'd been rewriting the records and cutting people out, you know, the whole Stalin game. Yeah, yeah, sure. It had been kind of like they'd been changing the record so many times that it uh, it became a situation where, you know, this, of course, as a philosophy prof, you're familiar with this, but, you know, Plato and the Republic, when they talk about you know, different kinds of lying, right? So you have, you have a lie, which is, uh, you know, a lie on the lips, which is where you know the truth and you're just saying a lie for some sort of, and right. right, but then there's like what they refer to as the the lie in the soul, right? And the lie in the soul is where you. It's not as if you in your head have can keep your story straight. Like yeah. You actually don't. You actually don't know what the truth is anymore. And that for me is kind of a worst case scenario. That if if the lies. But isn't that where isn't that where we've gotten with all of this? <sighs> I don't know if we're Isn't quite... that what we are? I mean, I think we started out with lies on the lips, and then you know, over the course of the year, as this like everything played out like in various complicated ways, then it became, oh, but this, oh, but the strains, oh, but the, you know, at the beginning it was like we have to protect the healthcare system, then it was like, oh, but the long COVID, oh, but the strains, oh, but the this that. It's just, I think a lot of people have seen like the degree to which the goalposts have gotten moved on this, and that's also not been, I think terrific for the credibility of science no and then but you do reach this this breaking point where basically people just have lost so much confidence that um then then it's kind of open season for all sorts of hucksters to come in and peddle conspiracy theories and people are going to be inclined um because there's there's a why would you you know so now you're telling people oh there isn't a 5g chip in your vaccine well why should i believe you you know, telling you <laughs> noble lies all along. Maybe you think that's a noble lie. Yeah, you know? it's, it's pretty crazy. I wanted to I wanted to finish off with uh, a question. This is from um, a actually somebody who's been on the podcast before, and I, but uh, she wanted to remain anonymous. But she said, um, "You know, Professor Winsberg, um, I have found myself very short temper, short tempered." Um, sort of anxious, um, quick to anger during this um, pandemic. And that seems to be the case with many of my students, with many of my colleagues and friends. Um, have you noticed a difference in your mood um, over the course of this pandemic? And what do you attribute that to? Yeah, absolutely. The number one difference is that um, I wake up with anxiety every morning. Um, oh. And uh, I just think it's just it's just normal cage animal like response. I don't know. Um, so there's you know so that's the most that's the most sort of brute biological like you know I just I just typically wake up with anxiety. Uh, it's been you know for the last second half let's say of, the, of this year that's been the case. Um, and uh, I mean that certainly the whole like thing we were, I think we were talking about this before. 
start recording, but the, the passage of time is super weird. Um, and yeah, I definitely am. I definitely am. Um, I definitely am, you know, quick to temper and irritable and, uh, as well. And I don't know the extent to which that has influenced my, um, sort of epistemology of all this, you know, um, in the sense that, uh, I'm a little bit angry about how all this is going. And, um, I think when you get angry, you, you definitely can be more, um, you know, subject to confirmation bias or whatever. Uh, and I, you know, I try to be, I try to be as good about that as I can, but no, you know, none of us are very good. We're all famous and not very good at that. So, uh, it's possible. It's possible that, you know, I mean, some of the things I think are, are, are as a result of just being a little bit, you know, being angry about all this. And then it's possible that the extent to which I'm angry about it is just a symptom of the, of, of the, you know, it's just a, it's a brute psychological symptom of the lockdown itself. So, yeah, I definitely, I mean, I definitely uh, recognize a lot of what um, this person's saying. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's, I've, I've definitely detected that in myself as well. It's, um, you know, and I also wonder, like, I don't know if you've read Johan Hari's book, uh, Lost Connections, which is all, it's about um, sort of the origins of depression and anxiety. He's, uh, he's been, it was a bestseller and he just, he updated it uh, to include you know, all sorts of uh, new stuff, but it's a very, very good book. And uh, I, it's the kind of book where people as varied as Tucker Carlson and Rachel Maddow have praised it. You know, like, it's not very often you find something that is praised. That needs to be really good or really bad. It's, you know, people like, uh, you know, Joe Rogan have praised it uh, along yeah. with like, you know, it's really kind of amazing. But one of the things uh, that he says in that uh, book is that a lot of what we call senility, a lot of the kind of signs of that we attribute to growing old and in, in, in the elderly is actually, it's actually not um, a function of, of being old necessarily. It's a function of the isolation that they have. Yeah. And that actually causes all sorts of cognitive uh, degeneration, not having a lot of, and so I just wonder if, you know, if all the research that he cites in, in making these points, I wonder if a lot of people are isolated. If, if we could be seeing these kind of macro level patterns where like lots of people um, are experiencing like an IQ drop, right? So there, it's yeah, impair, impairment of cognitive function. And if that is the case, I mean, you and I, right, given what we teach, like this is really worrisome because so many of the... Yeah. So Look, many I mean, I, the, I have to say being in, being, I have one class that I teach this semester in the classroom and that's just been, I'm so grateful for that. It's, uh, it's really been fantastic. And... Um, and then the other thing, one other thing, I, I, I kind of maybe, I don't think I've read this book, I mean, but, I, but I kind of remember maybe when this was, when this, when this claim was kind of, you know, becoming meme-ish or whatever. And I remember wondering at the time um, whether social media counted, you know, mm -hmm. as, 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 as reduced isolation. Um, and, and now I know the answer unequivocally. And the answer is absolutely not. Um, well, I think it, it, de it depends. I think mostly you're absolutely right. It, it doesn't count. It's a, it's a kind of 
I don't know, calorie-free, you know, gum that maybe sort of feels, you feel like you're eating something, but you're you're not getting any nutrition. But but there are, you know, I I look at, you know, the way I've been able to keep in touch with my mom for the last year and, you know, with extended family and stuff like that. And if it wasn't for these, you know, private group chats on Messenger and things like that. that, That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, you know, actual social media, not, you know, Obviously, you can use Facebook as, as a as a as a private messaging platform, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like being on Facebook. I mean, I because because I've had I've been outspoken about the pandemic, especially on Facebook. I have I've gone from having just the usual two or three hundred friends to having you know close to two thousand now. I think, and I've spent a lot of the last year on Facebook. Yeah, um, you take you take crazy abuse. I guess this is unbelievable. The rants I've seen against you, about they like. I'm glad you said that because some people, yeah. tell me the, some people, some people focus on the opposite on the, on the amount of abuse that I that I that I that I dish back. Oh, so it's, it's not I'm even. Glad it's ten percent of what you get. Okay, thank you. I'm, I'm going to make you sign a piece of paper that says that I'm going to have a friend. Oh, come on, that's obvious. Okay. I mean, that's not. That's not just my. I, I'm kind of often on the opposite side of the issue than you, and, and that's obvious to me. Yeah, it's ten okay. percent as much, you know, at most. Uh, but look, I enjoy that. I, I, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm unusual that I enjoy that. I, you know, I don't, I don't mind. <clears throat> I don't mind abuse as long as, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I don't mind that kind of abuse as long as I, I don't take too much flack for for dishing it back. You know. Yeah. I, I can sometimes even find that kind of thing fun, but. Um, but unequivocally, unequivocally, it can be, it can be, it can be fun. It can be, it can fill the boredom. It can, um, it can be, it can be useful in the sense that like, uh, I don't think I would, I don't think I would have been motivated to, to learn as much about all of the science. And, you know, I've, I've, I've had a few friends I've met on Facebook who, who, I, who are smart and I've talked about this stuff. So, but one thing unequivocally is, it does not count as, you know, to the extent that social interaction and the absence of social social isolation are psychologically important. It does not. It just it doesn't go in that ledger. It just doesn't. I mean, I, I just at least not for me. It, 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 might, it felt like it was for a few months. You know, uh, it felt like I, I was like, oh, I am socially connected because I'm having all these conversations on Facebook. It doesn't. It doesn't count. Yeah, and it's, it's it's amazing to me. You know, I have just a couple of people that I see in real life, like face to face. And it's you know, for instance, there's this one guy. He's a, a best-selling novelist, and he he happens to live on my street. And we we go for uh, walks in Mount Royal Park on the mountain, and it's kind of it's almost pathetic how much I look forward to those walks. Yeah. Like it really is getting like almost pathetic sometimes because he'll be actually the only person aside from my people I live with that I see for you know, in a week. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and I, and I can sense that, that kind of sort of almost like a, like a tinder, like scent of de- <laughs> desperation. <laughs> I think like, wow, this is crazy. Yeah, like, this is- no, I don't, I, I'm so, I mean, I, I don't know if you remember, I grew up in Montreal yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. I do, yeah. And uh, I'm so grateful to live, to be living in Florida this year, you know, because I don't know how people have managed to get through a winter with this. 
Well, they haven't. They're just like a lot of people are really, really kind of bummed out and sad, and you know they're not sure. I mean, how do you, how do you think this, this ends? Oh my god! I mean, this is another problem, right? I, I have, I have deep anxiety. This is never going to end. I just, I think back to, I think back to September 11th of 2001. And all the all the responses that we had to that that have never gone away. Guantanamo, Patriot Act, Afghan war in Afghanistan, they're all still happening. Exactly. And then, you know, just you know, this these are trivial things, but they're the things that impact my life more. Just all the idiocy at the airport, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's never going away. Right. We're never you're never gonna be allowed to take more than three ounces of liquids on your flight. Okay, is that important? No. But but it's but it's wor- it, it's worrying about this stuff, and then I see people, I see people saying things like, you know, um, we should have mask mandates now whenever there's a flu outbreak, <laughs> and I just think, or or you know, I, I don't know, I don't know, I just I, I I'm I'm worried that some of these things are are, are not going away, I, I, and 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 look, you know, part of the problem too is that. Um, it's not as if there haven't been an enormous number of people who have benefited from all this. You know, I mean, yeah. you don't think you don't think Jeff Bezos is like loves the pandemic. I uh, I, I think I would I'd be willing to bet uh, everything in my checking account uh, that he does not love it. That he doesn't love it. He, I think he's making a lot of money, but I don't think he—I don't think he's enjoying his life. You know, I don't oh, think. I, uh, I bet he is. I bet he's enjoying his life just just fine. And I think, the, and I think, <laughs> but, but 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 more importantly, look, I mean, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what is going on in his personal mental life. Um, you know, Amazon's power presumably has is extended far beyond Jeff Bezos's private thoughts. Um, they're, 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 you know. A variety of a variety of people have gained power and influence and money and whatever through some of these measures, and they're not going to let go of them very easily. And they have they have a lot of leverage now to keep them in place because people are people are very you know primed now to be responsive to to arguments that they never would have been responsive to a year ago. Uh, I think you know, I think that's a really I think that's a really really important point, and I think if I had I actually wish I had like brought that up earlier because that is I think that may be the most important takeaway point from this entire episode that the, the parallel to September 11th and to yeah. the back that so many of these things that are brought in during during crises or wartime situations or that uh, they end up never going away, whether it's the income tax or the, you know, things get brought in because, oh, we need it for this emergency situation and then they never go away. So that's, so you're, you're kind of, you're sort of bad tripping on the pandemic or on the lockdown, right? You're, cause you yeah. know, they, they, they say like you basically what, uh, what happens when somebody, this, uh, a psychiatrist friend of mine was explaining this to me. He said, essentially what happens when somebody bad trips, on a hallucinogenic or because of psychosis or something like that, that what, what is happening is this thought enters, enters their mind that I've done something to my brain, which is unalterable. 
and then I'm going to be like this forever. And oh, that wow. thought, that thought that this is not going to end, yeah, um, causes uh, panic and despair, yeah. right? And so that you, and the, that's why like the people can endure a great deal of uh, pain, physical pain, or or psychic pain, as long as they know that it's going to end, yeah, yeah, and that it has a clear end, then they will sort of be able to endure it. But as soon as they think this is going to be like this forever, which is exactly what you're saying, then despair and anxiety Do you not think I'm right? sets in. I think um, I'm, I worry. I, I, I'm very much worried that you're right. I did. What Look, I'm, makes I mean, me, it's not, so much, I, I'm not, it's not, it's not that I would, it's not that I would want to bet money on any particular thing not going away. It's just that I really think the moral landscape has changed. Um, in the sense that like, if you had told people two years ago or asked people like two years ago, do you think it'd be okay to make, to require people to wear masks during flu season? Like only a lunatic would have said yes to that question. Yeah. But yeah, this would have been safetyism taken to an extremely crazy yeah, extent. But I think I think there's a large percentage of the American population now, and I assume it's true in Canada too, that now not only think the answer is yes, but they think that you're a moral monster if you don't agree with them. Yeah. Well, this is this is uh, incredibly fraught and. Um, I, I thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk to us about yeah. this. I can I can tell in your voice, it's interesting hearing the difference between your voice and my voice uh, now and last May when we recorded. Yeah. I, I could not believe. Uh, yeah, you sound today, you know, much more sort of sick and tired of being sick and tired. You sound much more yeah, yeah, definitely. exasperated. Definitely, and you sound like and. Uh, and that, I couldn't believe listening to that episode we recorded last last May. I sound so um, exhausted and depressed, and I sound like I'm like almost like drunk. And I didn't realize at the time that I was that um, that I was dealing with it so horribly. I thought I was you know, doing okay, but you know, I look back and I mentioned that to my wife, and she said, uh, "She said, well, you know, look at pictures of you from last May. You had." You had put on like tons of weight. You were like, your sleep schedule was totally upside down. You were like, so it's, yeah, it is. I think I've been, work, I've been working out a ton for this whole last year. And that's been like also a saving grace. I think I'd probably be completely insane by now. Do you, I mean, do you, you can't do it in a gym. So you're doing oh, yeah, we have, no, we have gyms. I go to the gym here. I go to the gym. They're open? Yeah. Everything's open, Tampa. Every, literally, every, in Florida, everything's open. This is the part. This is this is what I'm. Te- this is what I people don't recognize. Right? It's like you look at compare the data for Florida and California, and everything here is open. I went to the gym this morning. It was quite crowded. It's just is that I'm so jealous of that. Yeah. Well, I think I will. Uh, I will. I will end on that uh, of of sort of having like lockdown envy or openness envy yeah. <laughs> for you. Uh, but yeah, let's uh, let's talk again in in a couple of months and do see see where this is uh, sure. where this is going. But yeah, anyway, thank you very much for coming on the podcast, and um, I appreciate you answering all of the. I still have tons of questions I didn't get to, but I, I didn't have any illusions that I would get through all of them. But um, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me back on.
All right. Take care. All right. Take care.